Hey, what's up, everybody? It's your boy, Doom. Um, so I'm just going to preface this by saying thanks for tuning in to the very first episode of this new series that I'm trying out. Um, where when I take something that I love, be it a movie or a television show, I mean, a comic book, a manga, or maybe just even a regular novel, and I dissect and analyze it in order to gain a better understanding of it. Sometimes that analyzation will bring to light the reasons why certain aspects of... Uh, that particular thing works very well, and at other times it'll be to point out the flaws that exist within it. In today's episode, as you might have guessed by looking at the title, uh, I'll be taking a look at one of my favorite movies in the DC Extended Universe, or DCEU for short, um, that movie being Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. I chose, I chose this movie uh, to start this series off for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I felt it fitting to begin my series with the first movie in this particular cinematic universe. After I finish my analysis of this film, assuming I don't switch uh, to another form of media, then I'll try my hand at analyzing Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, and then the Suicide Squad, and so on and so forth, until I eventually catch up to wherever they are at this point in time. Um, The other reason I chose to kick off things with this movie is because... I mean, in all honesty, aside from, I guess, Aquaman, I feel it serves as the best origin story in the DCEU. And I mean, really just one of the, the best movies it has to offer. Um, I know that might sound odd, you know, my claiming that both this movie and Aquaman serve as the two best movies the DCEU has to offer. And I imagine that there are some of you who are already picking up your phones or remotes or whatever in an attempt to find something else to listen to, but, I mean, it's the truth, as far as I'm concerned. Because, you know, at the end of the day, art is very much subjective, which is why, you know, while I feel that both Aquaman and Man of Steel are the best movies in the DCEU, it doesn't change the fact that they're sitting at 65% and 56% respectively, according to critics um, on Rotten Tomatoes. Whereas the first Wonder Woman movie, a movie I did not particularly care for at all, is sitting at 93% at the moment. Personally, I don't think that makes much sense. <laughs> so much, in fact, that a few years ago I wrote an article on my website um, titled Why I Don't Understand the Praise Behind Wonder Woman. In it, you know, I detailed the issues I had with it being uh, rated so much higher than Man of Steel because, you know, at the time Aquaman wasn't out yet. But uh, but at the end of it, you know, I settled on the idea that the movie just wasn't geared towards my particular interest. The same way Deadpool or Guardians of the Galaxy may not be everyone's, you know, particular cup of tea, even though I like those movies. Anyway, uh, the other reason I wanted to start my series with this movie is because there's a lot that can be said about this movie. If nothing else, there are certain aspects of this film that um, I feel deserve to be looked at and thoroughly discussed. This movie offers a very different take on the world's most uh, on the world's most iconic superhero, one that is you know inherently divisive and has not only received a significant amount of ba- of criticism but also just straight-up backlash. Um, yeah, especially in regard to the, you know, a particular scene uh, in the final act of the film. We, I'll, get, you know, I'll get to that later, but uh, that being said, I feel like this kind of goes without needing to be said, but I'm still going to say it anyway, just in case. But um, there will be spoilers for uh, every aspect of this film, and just for good measure, there will likely be spoilers for every one of the DCEU movies. So... Uh, you have been thoroughly warned. Anyway, like I was saying, the divisiveness 
of this particular movie is part of what makes it something worth analyzing, in my opinion. Because while I like the way in which Man of Steel uh, attempts to usher Superman into a more modern, grounded setting, there are plenty of people who didn't care for the overall darker tone of the movie. In many ways, it's clear that Snyder drew inspiration from, uh, you know, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy and, you know, movies like it. In fact, Nolan is one of the scriptwriters for Man of Steel, and his influence can definitely be felt throughout. I didn't actually know that um, before like, doing a little bit of research for this movie. I didn't know that Christopher Nolan um, was one of the writers for the script. I thought that was pretty interesting. But yeah, this darker iteration of the character is not something that meshed well with many fans. And I can understand that. Most people prefer Superman who innately fights for true justice in the American way. Not one who can see the trouble plaguing the world, but is hesitant about stepping into the limelight and accepting the role of Earth's protector. But personally, I mean, I dig that. <laughs> Approaching the character in this way, like the way in Man of Steel, uh, serves to humanize him in a way that I can appreciate. Because, I mean, realistically, who would want to be Superman? Like, who would just want that kind of uh, insane responsibility I like this version of Superman because he feels like less of a character and more of a person a person who's trying to figure out what kind of man he wants to be and I feel like there's something to be said about that there's something that I feel everyone can latch onto in regard to that sentiment because you know for the most part we're all just trying to figure out what kind of person we want to be in the world I can understand how <laughs> I can understand uh, those that like Reeves' iteration of the character, the man of tomorrow that we're all striving to become, but I'm far more interested in the idea of a man who isn't thrilled by the notion of coming out to the world as a hero. A man who is rightfully, uh, you know, rightfully skeptical of how the world will view him. It's a compelling take on the character, which is part of the reason I chose to start with this film. Now, I do want to add that while I love this film, I'm not going to just pretend that its flaws are non-existent. And let's be very clear, this movie definitely has its flaws. And, you know, let's just be even more clear by saying that the majority of these flaws exist within the opening sequence. I'm prefacing this episode by saying that because if you judge this series solely on this episode, then it's likely that you might assume I'll just end up bad-mouthing the entire film. But I want to make it clear that as we get into the later episodes, i.e. when we get to the better parts of the film, my rhetoric will change accordingly. But for this first act, <laughs> well, this first act is kind of a mess, and I'm not going to pretend it's anything less than that. Also, because of how much I have to say about this opening sequence, this episode is significantly longer than the ones that will follow. I'd say you can expect episodes that are roughly, I don't know, 20 to 40 minutes going forward. But it just kind of depends on what it is I'm talking about that day. And, and yeah. So, with all that being said, I want to again welcome you to the very first episode of the Under a Microscope series. For comics mostly. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed creating it. And, yeah. Alright. Let's get to it. Part 1. The Destruction of Krypton. So, the film begins with the final days of Krypton, and for the most part, 
and I imagine we all know how this story goes. While many of the elements surrounding the story remain intact, such as the fact that Kal-El is born and has then rocketed off the planet towards Earth, many other aspects have been changed, with some of these aspects serving to you know, improve the mythos, but um, for the most part, in my opinion, uh, I feel as though they only serve to make the eradication of the Kryptonian species seem very perplexing and honestly just kind of kind of dumb. <laughs> I can respect the fact that the story requires that they, you know, be on the verge of extinction by the time Kal-El is uh, rocketed off the world, but the methods by which the scriptwriters go about getting to that point just, I mean, it serves <laughs> to make the Kryptonian seem rather asinine. Uh, yeah, let's go with asinine. There are other words I could choose, but they're just kind of inappropriate so anyway the opening uh scene begins literally with the birth of kal-el and um as jor-el is assisting uh, lara with the delivery uh, the camera is uh, motioning in and out of focus along with audio as laura's cries are overlaid with the sound of a heartbeat the heartbeat belonging to their son or maybe her it's not entirely clear she gives jor-el <laughs> she gives jor-el that look that many laboring mothers give the father of their of their children that why did I let you do this to me kind of look. The scene also gives us our first hint at what kind of world we're entering. We get a glimpse at the kind of technology that exists on Krypton with machines that through some sort of looks like a like a nanotechnology are able to produce 3D images in the same vein as an ultrasound. These same devices will later be shown to have other interesting abilities, such as having a certain degree of uh, sentience, a pretty decent level of combat ability, and the Kryptonian Kryptonian equivalent of FaceTime. (laughs) As the camera uh, pans out, we see that Jor-El and Laura are alone in a rather large, barren-looking place, which does seem to kind of juxtapose the high-tech nature of the two sentient drones hovering around them. The place feels uh, it feels very sterile, almost as if they just kind of stumbled upon an empty warehouse with a single bed and decided to just have Laura give birth here. The fact that they are alone, however, does uh, it bear it bears some significance. Uh, while this is explained later in the uh, in the first act, the fact that Laura and Charell uh, have given birth to a child through natural means is, as General Zod later calls it. Heresy, um, but um, you know more on that in a minute. The scene ends with the birth of Kal-El, and we get a shot of Jor-El admiring his newborn son. The music swells as young Kal-El's cries grow louder, and as both his cry and the music peak, or like crescendo, um, we transition to our first shot of Krypton, and I'll admit it's a stunning visual. Kal-El's cry transitions to like the cry of some sort of Kryptonian beast, and then we get a nice long shot of the Kryptonian sun rising in the distance. Everything about this works very well. The beasts cry, there are like bird-like creatures flying in the air. Uh, we get a glimpse of the natural like satellites pressed against the backdrop of the sky. Uh, the fact that in the distance we can make out other man-made structures, which look like either buildings or aircrafts. It's just, it's, it's, it's a really beautiful shot. Um, it's just unfortunate that it's only one of four real glimpses we get of Krypton. Yeah, the next 18 minutes will provide us with a number of cool shots of, of like what we'll just refer to as the capital. But as far as the actual topography of the world, 
Um, there are honestly only three other shots in this in this act or in this movie, really. Uh, and really, yeah, it, it just it, those are the only shots we really get to see of what Krypton actually looks like, which is a real problem um, if you expect anyone to care about like any of this. Um, like for example, okay, yeah, for example, how big is Krypton? The only shot we get of the entire planet is when it explodes. I would make the claim that it's roughly the size of Earth, but I can't be entirely sure if that's the case because there's really nothing to compare it to. It's just it's just a planet uh, floating out, you know, in the middle of space. Is it the size of Mercury? Um, is it the size of Earth? Jupiter? Cybertron from Transformers? Tiny Planet from Rick and Morty? I mean, there's really nothing to tell us one way or the other. And without knowing that, it's rather difficult to truly understand the scope of the loss that we're dealing with. I mean, I, I mean, we're dealing with the extinction of an entire species, you know, save you know one baby. But I, I don't, I don't know how many people <laughs> are on this planet. I don't know. Um, it's just, yeah. I mean, but then I guess I suppose, I suppose whether we know the size of the planet or not, there's still no way of just knowing how much of it's inhabited. So anyway, while the shot itself. Is a visual treat. Um, it is important to take to take note of the fact that for the most part, the landscape on this planet seems to be pretty barren. The topography is mostly mountainous, and while there can be um, some greenery seen, like uh, around where those beasts were screaming, you can see that there is some um, some plant life and things like that. Later shots show practically no greenery whatsoever. In fact, in that same shot, we see that the other residences, um, the other houses that are in the area, I guess we can call it in the area, um, they seem like they're miles and miles apart. They seem very spread out. The only place that seems relatively populated is a cluster of buildings just outside of where the Council of Krypton is holding their meeting with Jor-El. And speaking of which, I mean, what even it like... What even is this place? In this shot, in this shot, we see that there are buildings um, that are just arbitrarily, and I mean, seemingly haphazardly, just placed all over an odd-looking terrain. What is this place exactly? Like there are ships circling what I'll assume to be the main building, but what purpose do they serve? Is there any purpose to any of this, or is it just to have a, a shot that shows us that Krypton has interesting technology? If it's the latter, I would say that, you know, it succeeds in that, I guess, but it doesn't change the fact that it's kind of, it's kind of a hollow statement. Oh, there's, there's a spaceship. Uh, cool. Those are, you know, cylindrical looking buildings, I guess. I mean, it just seems like a missed opportunity because at this point we've already gone through two out of four, um, topographical shots, uh, you know, shots of the environment or whatnot, or the, or the planet itself. So yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, we head inside the structure and meet the Council of Krypton, or two of the five members of the Council of Krypton. The other three are there. <laughs> it's just that they don't say or do anything. <laughs> In fact, over the course of the whole opening act, we only see about 30 or so individuals. I say see as in, like, there, there are people in the scene. Um, and of those that we see... Only six of them actually have any dialogue. Unless you want to count the AI, in which case, I mean, eight. <laughs> eight people, eight characters, sorry, eight characters who actually speak. Furthermore, furthermore, of those um, that do speak, 
only four of them have names that are actually spoken aloud, which isn't, you know, inherently a problem. You can have nameless side characters that serve to add to the story, but they don't really do that. <laughs> One's most important act is dying at the hands of Zod, about 60 seconds from now, and the other's most important act is sentencing Zod and his men to the Phantom Zone. It's just... It's, it's weird, but, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, Jor-El tells the council... Um, Jorah tells the council Krypton's core is collapsing. We may only have a matter of weeks. Harvesting the core was suicide, which, I mean, I'll I'll say is a great way of it immediate, of immediately informing the audience of not only what is going to happen but also why it has happened. In other forms of media, the the um, destruction of Krypton is often the result of natural causes, such as Krypton's sun, Rao going supernova, and um, engulfing the planet. This is the case in many versions of the comics, as well as the original Superman movie. This was also the case in the animated series, which had introduced the added element of Brainiac, uh, the centralized super artificial intelligence betraying the Kryptonians by telling them everything would be fine, when in fact, <laughs> when in fact that was very much not the case. Um, however, this movie kind of deviates from that in a number of ways. Firstly, instead of the Kryptonians being, you know, victims of the natural order of the universe, they are the perpetrators who have uh, brought the destruction of their world onto themselves, despite the fact that they had been warned of the potential dangers of doing so. And to switch to a more, you know, like subjective purview for a moment, I do wonder if that wasn't done intentionally as a means of making a statement about our own society. The idea of an intelligent species mining the resources of their world to the point of potential destruction sounds, uh, you know, it sounds uh, pretty pretty familiar. Um, and if that is the case, you know, kudos to the writers for, you know, kind of making that, uh, for branching or making that connection, I guess. Um, Anyway, one of the two council members claims that they had no choice but to mine the core of the planet because their energy reserves were dwindling, to which I say, <laughs> didn't you though? Like, <laughs> go ahead. So before we continue, let's take a moment to discuss, you know, some of the technological feats the Kryptonians have managed to accomplish over the course of 100 millennia. And yeah, that, I mean, you heard that correctly, 100 millennia, 100,000 years, the Kryptonians have been a highly advanced civilization for 100,000 years. To put that into perspective, in the last 200 years, we on Earth have managed to create telephones, vehicles, planes, batteries, satellites, spaceships. We've successfully sent people to the moon. We've sent rovers to our nearest planet, probes outside of our solar system. We've created computers and the internet and managed to combine them both into a device that fits into our pockets. We've managed to harness the power of our planet and of the star that our planet revolves around. All of that in less than 200 years. And take special note of the fact that when I say that the Kryptonians have been around for 100,000 years, what I'm saying is that they've been intergalactic travelers for 100,000 years. So, like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so this is a society that has been exploring the cosmos for 500 times longer and the time it took for us to do any of those, you know, aforementioned things, this this is a society that has managed to, this is a society, um, that has managed to construct, oh no, I'm sorry, we live in a society, that's what that quote is, I'm a joker, sorry, um, that has managed to construct, right, so, my apologies, um, you know, the Kryptonians, um, 
are a society of people that have managed to construct rifles capable of firing concentrated energy, produce highly advanced artificial intelligence, they've created ships capable of traversing the cosmos, seemingly moving faster than light speed, they've installed outposts on dozens, if not hundreds, or you know, possibly even thousands of different planets, They've created machines that literally allow them to terraform said planets to fit their particular needs. They have built incubators wherein they create designer babies and have the ability to manifest portals that lead to pocket dimensions outside of known space and time. And yet, for some reason, despite having at least a 100,000 year head start, they haven't figured out a way to harness the seemingly limitless power that could be attained from a star. I mean, at this point... (laughs) At this point, they should know how to make a Dyson Spear. Like, it, it just doesn't... And a Dyson Spear is... I think I'm using the right term there. Essentially, it's something you would use to harness the power of the sun. Kind of like uh, solar panels that you would put all around a star. Not a sun, but a star, yeah. A star, and it would basically just... I mean, you can look up what a Dyson Spear is. I don't know if I'm, I'm explaining that properly, but... Uh, Essentially, yeah, it's just harnessing the power of the sun more efficiently than even a solar panel will do. It's the most efficient way of harnessing power from a star. But yeah, um, it just it doesn't it doesn't make sense. We're talking about a society that has the ability to literally terraform planets. So it just uh, I mean, furthermore, if the only way they knew how to obtain energy was to harvest the core of a planet. And if they have the ability to travel to other planets, why on Earth, why on Krypton, would they not go to another planet and mine that core? What purpose was there in mining the core of their home of their own home world when any planet would have likely sufficed if all they needed was the core of it? It just doesn't. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense at all. But and <laughs> whatever. And Jor-El, uh, Jor-El says as much himself. When asked what he would have them uh, do, he claims that they should have looked to the stars as their ancestors did, and he's right. However, however, immediately after that, he kind of contradicts himself. <laughs> he says we could begin by using the old outposts. And when one of the two council members asks if he seriously believes that they should evacuate the planet, he says no. Everyone here is already dead. Which, what? Like it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. Why would you suggest that they could begin? but then claim that everyone on the planet is already dead. Because what he says is we could begin by using the old outposts. But then he says, no, everyone here is already dead when questioned if, you know, if he actually believes they should evacuate the planet. It's just, it's weird. I don't imagine that he would have sent his son to an uninhabited outpost by himself. And we know by the everyone here is already dead line that you've already given up on everyone living on Krypton. It just doesn't make sense that you would say, oh, hey, let's begin doing this. But no, everyone here is already dead. It would have been a simple fix to just say, like, we could have done this. We could have used the old outpost. But at this point, it's too late. But by saying, oh, we could begin by doing this. But it's like, no, because you don't actually want to save anyone here. You've already given up on everyone living on Krypton. Which... (sighs) That needs to be discussed. Uh, who is who is this man to make a claim like that? Now, I know that we don't know how many people exist on Krypton at the moment, but we have to imagine that it's you know a significant number of people, right? I mean, we see about 30 or so people um, 
And honestly, if you want to count the embryos that exist that we'll see later in the movie, um, then that boosts the numbers into the hundreds, if not possibly thousands. And we could go as far as to say that for every embryo, there is a man and woman who help fertilize them. But, I mean, that might not be true. Uh, I don't know exactly. It's not explained in great detail how those designer babies are made. I don't know if it they need, like, a sperm and an egg or if they just start printing them, <laughs> start printing the babies just from scratch. I don't know. But anyway, um, even still, you have at least, let's say, a couple hundred people. Then I feel like that should be more than enough reason to avoid using lines like everyone here is already dead, especially when you yourself just said that they had weeks before the planet would implode. It's just an odd thing for one of the protagonists of the film to claim. While his, you know, while his reasons for making the claim become more apparent later in the film, i.e. how the children of Krypton are you know, conditioned to behave in certain ways and take on certain roles, it does strike me as odd that he's willing to just pre- press Alt-F4 on the entire planet. I think that's how you, how you close out a document. So I'm pretty sure that's how it is. Um, <laughs> but basically just, you know, delete the entire planet. Just throw it all out. Throw the whole, throw the whole planet out. <laughs> It just, it's weird. Um, I mean, and it's not even the whole planet. It's everyone except for his own biological son. It just, that sounds like less of a protagonist and more of an antagonist. It, it just, it's such a departure from previous versions of the character who sought to save the people of Krypton, not let them all perish. What's even stranger about this is the fact that it appears as though they just kind of end up listening to him and choosing to go extinct it's really it's weird anyway Jor-El asks them to have asks them if he can have control of the codex and while this is explained in greater detail later in the movie I think it's best to kind of go over this information right now on the wiki for this movie the codex is described as a skull belonging to an ancient Kryptonian with whom modern Kryptonians shared an identical genetic makeup Kryptonian society developed the technology to read and later implement the genetic sequences of the remake of the remains to fetus models so as to establish artificial population control, thus producing citizens fit for a predetermined role in Kryptonian society upon birth. Essentially, it's the driving force, this is me now, essentially it's the driving force of the designer babies found in the Genesis chambers. In Jor-El's um, own words, all Kryptonians were conceived in chambers such as this. Every child was designed to fulfill a predetermined role in our society as a worker, a warrior, a leader, and so on. So, like, honestly, the concept on its own is pretty interesting. The idea that they've essentially gotten to a point where uh, giving birth is no longer necessary and that they now simply decide what ingredient, what ingredients uh, they want to put in a fetus and bake them until they're ready. And even though the idea sounds cool, uh, it also sounds like it could be rather terrifying and could lead to a lot of problems, which, you know, as we you know come to find out, it has. Not necessarily the fact that they choose to make babies outside of the body, but because they choose to sociologically, psychologically, but more importantly, genetically condition them to take on certain roles. It'd be one thing if they wanted to create children with superior immune systems or children that would be more athletic or have a better aptitude towards learning, but that doesn't appear to be what happened here. Instead of augmenting them in a way that might inspire more abstract thinking, it seems as though most people were born with single-tracked minds. Zod is a prime example of that. He was bred to protect Krypton, 
And so he's willing to do whatever it takes to get the job done as quickly and efficiently as possible, even if it means expending life while doing it. As long as he can protect the majority of his people, then he's okay with doing whatever needs to be done, even if it means murdering a member of the council or exterminating an entire planet. Zod has a very one-track mind in that regard. So, if we use him as a baseline, we can assume that the same can be said for those in power. They were presented with a problem, i.e. dwindling energy reserves, and the quickest and most efficient way, in their minds, to solve the problem was to use the material they had at their immediate disposal. At least that's how I'm imagining that worked. Truthfully, it's difficult to tell because we know very little about the Council of Krypton. It's easy to dissect General Zod as we see his actions throughout the course of this movie, and uh, we even have him clearly state the directive assigned to him, um, the directive assigned to him via his conditioning near the end of the film. However, the council only has a handful of lines, a total of four instances between the two, uh, the two council members that actually speak, wherein one of them says anything. So it's significantly more difficult to understand the logic behind their actions because they only ever say two things each. <laughs> they only have two lines of dialogue each. It's just, <laughs> but yeah, okay. Anyway, Jarrell goes on to say that even though um, even though everyone on the planet is dead, technically, according to him, whatever, uh, there is still hope to be found, uh, claiming that he has held that hope in his hands. And again, there's a glaring issue to be found with what he's claiming here. How is the only hope of Krypton a child? And no, I mean, it's not even a child. It's a newborn who you plan on rocketing off to another planet. <laughs> Furthermore, at this point, you have no idea where you're planning to send him. You have Laura at home trying to find that out right now. And who's to say she would she would have found uh, a suitable planet in time? Even still, assuming she did find a planet that was teeming with life, what are the chances that said life would be the right kind of life? I mean, how lucky is Cal to have been a white, human-looking baby? What if he had looked like, I don't know, a young Zoidberg? Or Zim, or Morty Jr., or, I mean, honestly, what if he had just been black? I mean, let's be real, his experience would have been very different had that been the case. But, you know, furthermore, what if the only hospitable planet that could be found was, like, Gazorbazorp world from Rick and Morty? Like, super strength wouldn't have done him much good if he ended up in the stomach of a monster the instant he showed up. I mean, the likelihood of finding a planet wherein his son would seamlessly blend in with the dominant species had to have been astronomically low. And yet here he is, making unsubstantiated claims. <laughs> also, it's interesting that he would come out and make that claim about his son being born anyway, especially to the Council of Krypton. I mean, given it was likely the Council that who had created the law that forbade creating life through, uh, <laughs> through, through natural means. Um... Because, I mean, Zod later describes Jor-El and Laura's actions as heresy. So what exactly did he think the response would be from the council that helped implement that law? Who's to say that they wouldn't have just detained Jor-El and Laura and, I don't know, discarded of Cal? It would have been interesting to see, uh, to see you know, exactly how that would have played out for Jor-El. But before we get a chance to find, out, um, to find that out, find out what their reaction would be, we get the introduction of, hands down the best villain in the DCEU, which I know isn't saying much, but, you know, still, um, as General Zod blasts his way to the building. Now, I plan on doing a much more in-depth, substantial analysis into the character of Zod in uh, one of the 
next episodes, but for now, I want to focus more on uh, just the story and just do this linearly, as linearly as possible. Um, Anyway, after bursting into the room, Zod's men quickly dispatch the council guards as Zod informs Jorel and the others that the council has been disbanded. Upon hearing this, one of the council members asks, under whose authority is the council being disbanded? To which he responds with, (laughs) mine, and he then proceeds to murder her with his pistol. He then has his crew round up the others, claiming that they will all be tried and punished accordingly. I actually really appreciate the scene because it serves to establish the kind of character Zod is in a relatively short amount of time. It shows us that he is someone with enough clout to form a militia powerful enough to strong-arm their way into the council's chambers, something I imagine wasn't easily accomplished. Sure, there were only a couple of guards in this particular room, but as we could see from the shot earlier, this is a relatively large building, and I imagine that there were a number of guards roaming this place. In addition to that, um, the act of killing one of the council members but arresting the others shows us that Zod isn't one for wanton murder. Yes, his men did kill the guards in the room, but that was a kill-or-be-killed situation. Had he not taken them out, they would have killed he and his men. And honestly, it wasn't even Zod who killed those guards, it was his men who did that. I mean, I'm not taking that away from Zod, they, I mean, they would have had to do, they would have had to have done it, um, through his orders, but, still, anyway, um, Zod did, however, kill that one council member himself, but in sparing the others for a fair trial... I don't know, I felt like it shows the audience that his initial act of murdering her was to prove a point. It was to show everyone that he, indeed, means business, and I can really appreciate that. Sometimes violence is necessary in order to get your point across. Sometimes it's the only option. But like, I can understand how in the moment when you're, when you're first watching this, you might immediately see Zod as the villain. I mean, for comic book fans, i.e. The, the target audience of this film, you hear the name Zod and you automatically think villain. The same way comic book fans knew right away that Mysterio wasn't going to be one of the protagonists in Spider-Man Far From Home. Furthermore, the very first time you see the character, he murders someone. Not very heroic, right? Or, I mean, given the one of the last scenes in this movie, I guess it just kind of depends on the situation. Um, but whatever. <laughs> anyway, we have... To keep in mind that Zod isn't doing any of this because he wants to. He's doing it to protect the people of Krypton. He's doing this because the council has ignored the fact that their actions would lead to, lead to Krypton literally imploding in on itself. So, I mean, <laughs> to switch to a more subjective point of view for a moment, if you had a government that was showing total disregard for its citizens and was, in fact, actively putting them in a situation that could lead to their extinction... Would you not want someone to come in and overthrow said government? I mean, I don't know. I would. And that's what Zod is doing. He claims that in their endless debates, they've ultimately led Krypton to ruin. And they have. And now he's doing something about it. Even claiming that he should have acted long ago. And really, he should have. He might have been able to prevent the destruction of the planet had he only acted sooner. So... When he began, uh, when he began his coup, he needed to ensure the council understood the gravity of their situation. They needed to understand that not everyone on Krypton sought to just kind of hope for the best, and that there were some who would fight for their existence existence until their dying breath. That being said, did he absolutely need to kill her right then and there? Probably not, but he needed to prove a point, and I mean. <laughs> 
point point proven. Anyway, afterwards we see Jorel approach Zod, claiming that uh, attempting to usurp control at this point is madness. Um, even though, again, they have at most weeks before the planet will implode in on itself. Zod then asks Jorel to work with him in his attempt to save their species, to which Jorel refuses, asking him who will decide who lives and dies. You? Which is just. <laughs> which is just. <laughs> What? Jorel is somehow judging Zod for attempting to weed out what he regards as what he re- what he regards as degenerative bloodlines. Which, yes, I can't lie, does make him sound like a space Nazi. But who is Jorel to judge in this situation? Jorel is actively making the case that every person on Krypton should die, whereas Zod is stating that only certain bloodlines should die. And honestly, I mean, to digress for a moment, while his rhetoric does allude to you know, kind of a racist outlook on things Zod at least this version of Zod just doesn't strike me as the type to be an outright racist for years he has held his tongue and done nothing and only now that it has become evident that Krypton will die if nothing is done has he chosen to take action and part of that action is removing the bloodlines or I mean let's say the houses really um, because that's essentially what they're referring to that have led Krypton to ruin and truthfully what he's saying doesn't even really make a great deal of sense because every Kryptonian alive at the moment, aside from Kal-El, all came directly from the DNA of the Codex. And since they are all apparently genetically forged from the Codex, then that would make them all degenerative. Right? I mean, that's how that has to work, right? I, honestly, it just appears to be a case of bad writing, and honestly, we haven't seen the last case of that in this act. <laughs> but whatever. Anyway... Anyway, Zod tells, um, he tells Jor-El that he doesn't want the two of them to be enemies. But Jor-El says that uh, Zod has abandoned the principles that have bound them together by enacting this coup. Which, I mean, I don't really feel like belaboring the hypocrisy of what he's saying. But, uh, whatever, I, I guess I don't have a choice. Um, why does Jor-El feel as though it's somehow okay for him to have an illegitimate child and claim that everyone, except for said illegitimate child should be sentenced to die. But it's not okay for Zod to usurp control as a last effort to save the millions or billions of lives that exist on this planet. Possibly exist on this planet. Again, we don't know. So, <laughs> yeah, shame on Zod for trying to do that. Yeah, that's what whatever. It's such an odd stance to take, especially given the fact that Zod is asking you to stand with him and help him save their world. It's clear that Zod does not see Jor-El as an enemy, even going so far as to say, the last thing I want for us is to be enemies. Zod is clearly just trying to save their people, while Jorel is adamant about letting them die. To which, <laughs> to which I feel the need to ask the question, who's the real villain here? I mean, Jorel blatantly refers to Zod as a monster for trying to save lives, while Jorel actively wants to ensure that they all die, save his son. Jorel really does come across as kind of a villain, and honestly, just kind of just, just, just not a not a good guy. I mean, if nothing else, he appears to have this kind of Christian Bale Batman philosophy of not being okay with killing people, but being okay with letting them die. Except in this case, it seems as though he's just outright asking them to. But whatever. Zod then has his men take Jorel away to be imprisoned with the others, and the scene ends. The next scene opens up with Jor-El being taken somewhere. 
by three armed guards. And I say somewhere, because I'm not entirely sure where these men are taking them. The last scene ended with Zod telling them to take him away. And one, one would assume that meant taking him to a holding cell or something. However, when they come, come around a corner, uh, they're met by one of the floating AI systems that we saw earlier. And this one immediately addresses Jor-El. But why? Like, did they take him? Did they take him to his home? Because that seems unlikely. We know that his home is further away from this area, as he flies back to it um, after retrieving the codex. Whereas when he walks out of this building a few moments from now, he's basically in the middle of an outright civil war. So what? What is this place? Is this his office in that building, the building where he was having the meeting with the council? It's just very odd that his personal AI would be there waiting for him in this specific corridor. Like, how how would it have known to wait for him here? Anyway, the AI asks if everything is alright, and he knowingly nods to it and shuts his eyes just before it emits a blinding light. Now, now for the next part... <laughs> Let's switch to a more subjective outlook real quick. And before I even post the next question to you all, let me preface it by re-mentioning the Codex and what it means for Kryptonians. As I stated earlier, every single person living on Krypton, aside from Kal-El, were all created for a singular purpose. A singular purpose. The purpose is not only conditioned into them in a sociological and psychological sense, it is also literally genetically imprinted in their DNA. Got that? Cool. Okay, so with that in mind, could someone, could someone explain to me how Jor-El, a man clearly, sociologically, psychologically, and genetically bred to be a scientist, single-handedly takes out three men, all of whom had been sociologically, psychologically, and genetically bred to be, I guess, in the military, to be, you know, to be soldiers or warriors or whatever you want to call it. Oh, yeah, he uses the AI to blind them. I mean, that I, I guess you could use that as an excuse, but, I mean, I, it doesn't change. It doesn't. It still doesn't explain how uh, he flies through a literal war zone atop his pet dragon dinosaur thing, doing all kind of insane aerial maneuvers, or how he manages to swim a, ridiculous, a ridiculously long distance while attempting to retrieve the codex, or how he then jumps off of the massive structure housing the codex to escape gunfire, and then perfectly lands on this dino dragon and takes off towards his home, all without missing a beat. Or how he takes out another two soldiers later, and then literally bests General Zod in a one-on-one -on -one match. Like, what? where is the consistency? Jor-El is literally, like, James Bond and Q simultaneously. Unless, you know... Of course, the movie is claiming that Jor-El's conditioning didn't stick, in which case he should understand that there could possibly be others that are also able to break the conditioning and learn other skills outside of what they're designated to perform, which in turn would mean that perhaps his species doesn't need to be wiped off the face of the galaxy. Like, no? No? That, that thought didn't cr cross his mind? No? <sighs> okay. <laughs> Alright. Um, so, Jor-El Jor takes out these three men. Nope, actually five. There are five men in this scene because two more show up. This man effectively kills five people, and yet, somehow, Zod, who's actually only killed one person, granted that person was unarmed, is the monster here. Okay, so, so Jor-El Jor gets a call from Laura um, via the, you know, the floating AI, and he tells her to prepare the ship and then heads outside. 
And I'll be honest, this establishing shot is, is it's pretty fantastic in regards to letting the audience know that things have truly spiraled out of control. Carnage is just clearly unfolding on Krypton as Zod's crew and the established uh, Kryptonian government engage in, 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 a, in an outright civil war. It's honestly a really great shot. So great. In fact, I'm willing to... Uh, kind of ignore the fact that somehow, despite all of the, all of the destruction and explosions going on around him, somehow his Dino Dragon just shows up seemingly like out of nowhere, like it's a Night Fury or something, just able to teleport <laughs> in and out of existence, which maybe it can do. I don't, I don't even know. It's not like it's explained, but whatever. <sighs> so then. <sighs> And then, honestly, I, I, I know it sounds like I just kind of hate this movie. I really don't. This movie, I really do like this movie, but this opening sequence is just dumb. Dumb. It's just dumb. But it, whatever. So, yeah, fast forward. Jorel performs his numerous heroic feats by flying to the Genesis Chamber that's uh, housing the Codex, retrieving it, and then heading back home. These scenes do provide visual treats, but aside from the Genesis Chamber... Uh, all of these scenes ring, I mean, pretty hollow. Uh, it, it just it, it rings as hollow as the original shot of the Capitol. It's like, oh, look, he's flying under something, and now he's in something, and now he's escaping a crash, and he's, he's swimming and stuff, and I just, I, I, just, I, I don't care. <laughs> it's all just very abstract, and none of it really feels as though it carries any real meaning. It's sci-fi for sci-fi's sake. The establishing shot of Krypton at War was great. It, it was legitimately great. It, it, it tells you something it's something important that you need to know like hey it's things are going bad <laughs> real bad um but the rest of it however it's just it's just him getting from point a to point b to point c uh, to be subjective again uh, when i compare the sequence to other action movies i'm just really not all that impressed with it um just take for example the, the force awakens um, and the way Finn and Ray have to kind of escape the First Order in the um, in the Millennium Falcon. The sequence, I mean, to me, is it's exciting. It's tense. It, it doesn't feel hollow. It feels like the stakes are high. Uh, maybe that's not the best example, but I mean, it it, it feels better than this does. Um, but because this sequence, it just doesn't feel like it has any stakes whatsoever. I mean, by the end of this sequence, the Dino Dragon or whatever whatever that thing is has been wounded, and there's just there just isn't any emotional weight behind it. We never even see the thing again after this. It's like it's visually appealing, but mostly it just feels really hollow. <laughs> so, yeah. And one other thing of note here: uh, Why would a society? Why would a society as advanced as the Kryptonians use the Codex? This old-looking, Neanderthal-looking skull to engineer their designer babies. I understand that it's supposed to house the purest form of their DNA or something to that effect, acting as the sort of blueprint for their species. But what, why would you, why would you use the DNA of? And I'm assuming hundreds of thousands of years old Kryptonian. I mean, what about that makes any sense? Have they, have they never heard of natural selection, evolution? It'd be one thing if they were somehow augmenting themselves with the designer babies, but that's not even the case. If anything, it appears as though, like, as a species, they've, they, they've intellectually regressed to the point that their entire species has willingly chosen to come back to take refuge in a world that's weeks away from imploding with no intention of doing anything about their inevitable extinction. It's, it, does, it doesn't make sense. It does not make sense. And obviously, they have to know about evolution because 
that skull is literally, it looks like a Neanderthal or whatever came before Neanderthal. Or I'm, I'm comparing this, you know, like human uh, physiology, but like it, it, they had to have evolved from that. And yet somehow they're like, hey, that <laughs> using this DNA, the DNA from this thing that we evolved from to become better makes sense. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Not at all. Anyway, Jorel arrives at the literal house of El, uh, at his house, and Laura informs him that she's found a suitable world. So, two things. One, this is the, this is the second instance wherein changing one or two words drastically improves the dialogue for a scene. Earlier, like when I mentioned earlier, was the fact that Jorel had claimed that they could begin by looking at old outposts, even though he had already, you know, kind of resigned for them to die. It would have made more sense for him to say could have, you know, they could have looked to the old outpost, which insinuates that had they acted sooner, they could have evacuated evacuated the planet. In this particular instance, it's the fact that the AI says that the planet they found, um, the planet they found is orbiting a main sequence star, and the AI adds, and I quote, just like you said it would, which doesn't make sense given the fact that when um, Jorel arrives uh, arrived a few seconds ago, he asked if they had found a planet. Not the planet. He asked, did, they, did you guys find a planet? He didn't say, did you guys find the planet? Like, the planet that I said you should find. But it doesn't make sense that the AI, that, uh, the AI would say that because he didn't pick this planet. A simple fix would be to have the AI say uh, that the planet, the planet we found is orbiting a main sequence star just like you specified. It's, it's a simple fix. It's a simple thing. Just change a couple words. And it makes it make a lot more sense because the way it's written out, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that like oh, just like you said it would like, but I didn't I didn't tell you to find this specific planet. I just told you guys to find a planet. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm nitpicking, maybe I'm going too much into it, but uh, things like that bug me. Uh, it's yeah. Anyway, the second thing is um, what I find odd about you know the situation is the fact that Jorel appears to know the effect. That the young star will have on his son. He claims that Cal will be like a god due to the fact that his cells will drink in our son's radiation. Which, by the way, is an awesome way of putting that. The writer in me loves loves bombastic diction like that. Um, but it just serves to really muddle this story up. Like, a lot, when you really think about it. If the Kryptonians, <laughs> if the Kryptonians are aware that a younger star will endow them with godlike strength, why? Why are they still on Krypton? Why, upon finding this out, would they not have relocated to a solar system with a younger star? I get that they also mention gravity being a factor, but gravity isn't what gives um, Superman the ability to fly. Maybe it plays a part in his strength and his ability to leap tall buildings in a single bound, but not literally fly. That has to be the power of our star. It also endows him with, what, X-ray vision? Heat vision? ice, breath, or whatever, and skin that's practically impenetrable. Because I don't know if you noticed, but the Kryptonians uh, are pretty weak on their own planet. So why on Earth, why on Krypton, <laughs> would they choose that for themselves? What logical reason is there for them to stay on a planet that literally makes them weak? Weaker than what they could be? Is it somehow religious or something? I just... I I don't understand, and it's just never properly explained. I even played around with the notion that maybe they're unaware of it, 
But how could that how could that be possible? The Kryptonians have been intergalactic travelers for over a hundred thousand years. A hundred thousand years. And you're telling me of all the worlds that they've been to, of all the worlds they've terraformed, none of them were in a star system with a younger star? I mean, isn't, isn't that just convenient or, you know, bad writing? But whatever. The theory doesn't hold up anyway because how would Jor-El know about it if the rest of them didn't? I highly doubt he was sent out into space on his own to discover new worlds. It just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It, it does not make sense. Anyway, Laura, like any reasonable parent, starts listing her concerns regarding the idea of, you know, rocketing their literal newborn out into the far reaches of space. Because, you know... Cal's like what? Not not even a day old. Probably a few hours old. I'm guessing it doesn't really go that much into you know the timeline. But I'm imagining he was born and then Jorel went to yeah because he said I've held that hope in my hands when he was uh, in the council meeting. He he referred to his son being just born. So I'm saying I'm thinking Cal's been alive for like five hours at most. Maybe an entire day, maybe, but I, I don't think it's whatever. Sorry. Anyway, um, uh, rocketing, you know, sending Kal-El uh, out into the far reaches of space. But Jor-El makes it clear uh, that there's there's no future here in Krypton, and he, he's right. He's one hundred percent right. My thing is, why not make a ship for all three of them? I know that Jor-El claims that he and Laura are a part of Krypton's past, you know, relics that need to be left behind or whatever, but then he makes sure that he adds a fully functional version of himself, a literal digital copy of his mind and his memories to the ship so that Cal, uh, so that Kal-El can interact with it whenever he wants. Also, <laughs> subjectively speaking real quick, that's kind of, it's kind of messed up that he didn't add Laura to it. I mean, I wonder if she even knew that he was going to do that. Like, he gets to have this relationship with his son, and she just gets nothing. She gets to push push this baby out of her body, rip her, rip herself apart, and then just send him away, and that's it. I mean, just, I, I don't even think, like, I, I doubt he even knows what his mom's voice sounds like, or what she really looks like. It's, it's messed up, but whatever. Um... But what I'm saying, uh, essentially, is if you were gonna, if he, if Jorah was gonna do that, it, since he did do that, why not just go with him? I guess I can understand the logic behind wanting, uh, wanting Kal-El to grow up with humans so that when he eventually reveals himself to the world, he would be more accepted. However, still feels kind of weird. I mean, Jorah seems as though he's broken free of the conditioning, and I feel like the same could be said for Laura. And I mean, as such, it seems odd that they couldn't just go with him. Um, they didn't necessarily have to raise him. Uh, they simply could have landed together and then took the time to find a suitable family for Cal to live with and then dropped him at their doorstep or something and then just kind of kept an eye on him from afar, making sure he was treated well. Hell, they could, I mean, they could have pretended just to be normal humans, I, I, but I, I, I can understand the notion of him blending in a little better if he's raised by actual humans as opposed to them who would probably take years to kind of really blend into the society they probably never would completely blend in uh to the society so i don't know i just i i know jorel's uh shadow or uh, the, the his the his consciousness that he uploaded into that uh flash drive that um the digital copy of him. I know it makes the claim that they, they couldn't have adapted, but it just seems like more of a cop-out than anything. Because, 
I don't know. I, I, whatever. I mean, I guess my personal uh, biggest issue with this entire first act stems from how they chose to depict the destruction of Krypton. I mean, you see, other versions of the story have him you know, being rocketed out at the 11th hour with minutes to spare with the destruction of his planet. Like, and with Kal-El's, um, with the destruction of his planet and his literal rearview mirror as he heads towards Earth. That's how I have always imagined the character being sent off, but this isn't anything like that. Jor-El starts by saying that they might have weeks until the planet implodes. So, I mean, it's not as though you don't have the time to build a ship that, you know, would hold the entire family. It just seems odd that he resigned for he and Laura to sacrifice themselves like that. It's just, it's weird to me. Anyway, um, the two share a moment, admiring their newborn, knowing that, in moments, Zod and his men will be coming to retrieve the codex that Jor-El has stolen. It's a rather, you know, touching scene, and the actress who plays Laura, um, I believe her name is Ilet Zura, does a, a, a great job here. She really makes you feel for the character, a woman who's about to lose her child, and, I mean, soon after, her life. It's probably probably the most touching scene of this opening act. Jorel then proceeds to infuse the codex into his son through means of, I get science. Um, honestly, I'm not entirely sure what purpose this serves in the grand scheme of things, other than making his son a target for Zod and his crew in the future. It it's basically just a plot device. I mean, what exactly does it mean to have the codex in him? It's not part of what gives him his powers or his personality. It doesn't really do anything but get him targeted by Zod. And it makes sense that Zod would want him, but with Zod gone by the end of this movie, what purpose does it really serve for Cal? I mean, how would he access it? And what would he do with it if he could? The skull holds the secrets to Krypton's past. It's ancient past, not necessarily the things the species has accomplished during its 100,000 year reign. It just doesn't really make a lot of sense, especially given the fact that the important information seems to be held within the little flash drive that uh, Jor-El sends with Cal. So, it's it's just it's literally just a plot device. Anyway, his parents then say goodbye. Um, Jor-El armors up, and Laura readies the ship as Zod enters the house of El. So. The scene begins with Zod claiming that he knows that Jor-El has stolen the Codex, and despite the seriousness of this crime, he's willing to let Jor-El live as long as he returns it, yet again showing that Zod is not out to wantonly murder anyone. He simply wants to ensure the survival of their species. Jor-El then responds by saying that in sending his son off with the Codex, he is ensuring that all of Krypton will survive, not just the bloodlines that he... Uh, he being Zod, deems worthy. To which I, <laughs> to which I say, just what you're you're sending, you're sending one individual from one bloodline, one house, your own bloodline, your own house, out into space. How, how is that just? I don't, I don't understand. How is that not you deeming what bloodline is worthy, Jorel? Like, how do you, how do you say that with a straight face and think you're justified? I just, I can't. I really can't with this guy. Like, it, like, <laughs> I just, I can't. I, I, I can't deal with him. Whatever. Anyway, this, uh, this next part is pretty interesting to me. Zod's whole thing is that he wants to, you know, restore Krypton back to its former glory. But uh, what's his timeline in regard to that? Because I, because when Jor-El tells Zod that he, you know, that he and Laura have had a child through, um, you know, 
natural means, you know, special mommy and daddy hugs. Uh, Zadi, Zadi, geez, Zod responds with, uh, by saying, you know, heresy. And I just don't really understand why he says that. This isn't necessarily a plot hole, more of, you know, just like a lack of information in regard to what his goals are. For example, when exactly does he feel that Krypton lost its way in the last year? 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, 10,000 years, 100,000 years. It's clear that it's after Krypton. It's, it's clear um, that it's after Kryptonian started using Genesis chambers because he calls the, you know, the act of having a child through natural childbirth heresy. But uh, when, when, when did they stop doing that? <laughs> the history is, you know, vague and therefore um, a lot is difficult to understand. I mean, how does the Genesis chamber even work? Like I asked earlier, do do females offer up their eggs? Like, do males aim at a little plastic cup? Or do these babies literally just come from that skull? I mean, are people even allowed to uh, to do the mommy and daddy special hug on Krypton? <laughs> I mean, it's clear that their biology is the same because when Jorel and Laura did the special hug, they had a baby. So, I mean, yeah. It's just really vague and leads to a lot of unnecessary questions that wouldn't need to be asked if there was just a little more exposition in that regard. But I digress. Jorel then proceeds to activate I don't know, hero mode and takes out two more of Zod's men bringing his total kill count up to seven at this point and then uh, defeats you know the main man himself in a one-on-one -on -one battle. Yes, it ultimately ends with Jor-El dying, but it doesn't change the fact that he uh, he technically won that fight. He mollywhopped him. Uh, he, he, beat, he, beat, <laughs> he beat him up pretty good. Uh, Zod tries to, you know, plead with Laura not to launch the ship, but she's uh, she, she's made her decision. She and Jor-El have already made up their minds, and they're, they're going to save their son. And she proceeds to, you know, shoot the ship, shoot the ship, um, <laughs> launch the ship, uh, out into space and whatnot. So, as this, you know, Zod gets you know pretty upset about that um, and stabs Jor-El in the stomach. And you know, the plot armor that uh, Jor-El has been wearing for the whole opening act kind of turns to paper in an instant. Uh, the same can't be said for Cal though, because right as one of Zod's men is about to blow him to Kingdom Come, wink, wink, <laughs> another uh, another ship comes and blows Zod's man uh, out of the sky, allowing Cal to rocket off towards Earth as Zod and his men are apprehended. Two things about this. A couple things. One, why did Zod tell his men to shoot down that ship? He wanted to retrieve the Codex, right? So if he blew the ship up, did he think the Codex would survive? I mean, whether it was in the skull form or inside baby Cal, what... <laughs> What did he think was going to happen when he did that? Did he plan to just send a search party to scour through the wreckage and, uh, you know, put the pieces of the skull back together? Or worse still, did he, you know, plan to send a search party out to find the pieces of baby cow and try to, I don't know, siphon it from his flesh? I just, <laughs> yikes, I don't know. I, I, I it, Whatever. And two, if his goal was just to blow the ship up why did he wait and like why did he like he, he left the house of l and just leisurely walked up to his crew to tell them to blow that ship out of the sky like why did you why did you just stroll across this this walkway why <laughs> why were you so casual about it it just doesn't make any sense like you're like oh we need this but let me just strut on over here real quick and I just, well, whatever. Anyway, um, Zod and his men are sentenced, 
Zanya's men are sentenced to 300 cycles of somatic reconditioning, which, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm guessing is a really long time. If a cycle is the amount of time the planet takes to rotate around the sun, then it could, you know, be a really, really long time. Really? Um, I mean, Zod, Zod describes it as eternity. Michael, Michael Shannon really shines in this one, actually, showcasing just how unhinged yet determined General Zod is. He's a man who's been pushed to the brink. A man that believes he's doing what's best for his world, despite the fact that the council vehemently disagrees with his methods. He's a man who is, he's, he's fed up with the aristocrats who have corrupted and ultimately led to the destruction of, uh, of Krypton. While he went about it, and I mean, honestly, will continue to go about it in a very radicalized way, he truly believes that he is doing what is best for Krypton. For example, when he directs his attention to when he directs his attention to Laura, uh, okay, how how is she standing with the council? Like this actually doesn't make any sense whatsoever. She was one hundred percent complicit in Jorel's actions. Hell, I mean, she even volunteered to put the codex in Cal herself. How is she just standing there judging Zod and his crew, and not with Zod about to be shot into the Phantom Zone? Like, what? The only way she wouldn't be held accountable is if she lied about her role in all of it, which seems, I don't know, it seems unlikely. I just don't see her saying that it was all Jor-El and painting him in a negative light in an attempt to keep herself clean. It would just, it just, it just seems strange. I don't, I, I, I mean, I don't know much about her character because it's not like she has that many lines, um, but it just seems out of character for some reason. But, I mean, that's just my own thoughts about her, whatever. And so, I mean, if she didn't do it, uh, if she didn't, you know, throw jor under the bus, how is she not being held accountable? I mean, she literally had a baby, which is, as Zod said, heresy. And if that, that's fine. Maybe, maybe Zod just has very strict principles. Maybe that's not the case with the Council of Krypton. I, I don't... I feel like Zod is kind of a stickler for rules, so I, I have to imagine that it was... Like, that it is actually heresy. Plus, Jorel was saying that no one... I, mean, I, I feel like it, I feel like Zod's pretty legit with his with his saying that um, what they did is actually heresy. But if that wasn't enough, it's apparently common knowledge that Jorel stole the court... Ugh, stole the codex. So, why are they not trying to force her to provide the information regarding where he sent it? How is she standing with the council? I mean, is she somehow a part of it now? Has she always been a part of it? I don't understand how any of this is just okay. And hell, even if she had lied, Zod would have clearly have said that um, she was complicit. And Zod is nothing if not honest. I mean, yeah, he's a psychopath. Sure, whatever. But he's not a liar. I mean, he is literally yelling at her about the crime she's committed. How he's going to find her son and retrieve the codex. So, I mean... (laughs) What more proof do you need? I don't understand. In fact, I'm just, I mean, let's just, let's just take a, I'm going to take a second and pick an entirely different way this could have gone. So, so in my opinion, they could have sent Laura into the Phantom Zone with Zod and his men for, for you know, for being complicit in jor actions. She didn't have to necessarily have the same, um, same, what sort I'm looking for, same punishment she didn't have to do 300 cycles maybe she did i don't know 50 or 25 or just you know just some sort of punishment i mean whatever anyway 
Um, so she she would get sent to the Phantom Zone with Zod and its men uh, for being complicit. And then when Zod and his crew are eventually released from the Phantom Zone, they could have had her there with them. Not on their side, obviously, but as their captive. So then when they get to Earth, um, like cause she could have they could have tortured her to the point where um, she gave up the information or even if she didn't, whatever, she's there with them. Um, so then when they get to Earth, we as the audience could, you know, have, we have this emotional moment where Kal-El gets to meet his biological mother. And through some means, maybe uh, by helping Lois and Kal-El escape before they get a chance to extract the codex from him, they would execute her. Hopefully in front of Kal-El, which I know, I mean, that's, <laughs> that sounds really cruel that I'm like, yeah, hopefully they do it in front of him. But um, this would, you know, rally the audience against Sod even more, further solidifying him as a villain as well as giving us a heartbreaking scene for Kal-El as he loses his mother, um, the mother he just reunited with. I feel that could have been, I don't know, I feel like that could have been really cool, uh, but it is what it is. We got what we got, so it, it just, I don't know, it, it shows us that, um, what's it called? This scene, um, this scene shows us, well, I'm, I'm no longer uh, speaking hypothetically. I'm, I'm not going back to the actual scene where uh, Zod is yelling at everyone. It shows us that he's not thinking about himself during all of this. Uh, to put it in his own words later in the film, I exist only to protect Krypton. That is the sole purpose for which I was born. And every action I take, no matter how violent or how cruel, is for the greater good of my people. And now, <laughs> I, I have no people. My soul, that is what you've taken from me and boy am i going to take my time analyzing that whole speech in a later episode but for now i'm using it to give you a better understanding of who he is because honestly in this moment he seems to give more of a damn about krypton than anyone else there because he's promising to retrieve that which has been stolen from them while he's being punished for trying to preserve their species if nothing else zot's condition conditioning stuck like it, it really really stuck I also like to add a touch of everyone seemingly being in a great amount of pain as they're uh, you know, being frozen and packaged to be sent off into the Phantom Zone. And while the others either scream or groan, Zod doesn't give the council the satisfaction of hearing him say a damn thing. It's little things like that that make him such a phenomenal character. Also, insert random penis joke, but whatever. I really, I really like this version of the Phantom Zone as it feels... I don't know, it feels much more realistic than previous iterations. That one from the Christopher Reeve version, the original like square disc thing, was always kind of weird to me. And honestly, it seemed it seemed oddly cruel. But then I guess either way, it's just kind of a cruel punishment. Also, the score for this scene is one of my favorites of the DCEU for sure. Hans Zimmer is just a phenomenal um, composer. He just he goes ham on this whole soundtrack, and I love it. Um, and yeah, finally. Uh, we end this opening act with the aforementioned destruction of Krypton. And while the whole sequence is undoubtedly a visual treat, I, I can't look past, I cannot look past the overall stupidity of this entire situation. The fact that the Kryptonians have been a highly advanced species for over 100,000 years just serves to make their demise seem utterly ridiculous. It was almost as if siphoning off the genetic material from that ancient skull served to make the majority of their population as dim-witted as that creature likely was. It just, it just doesn't make any sense that their population 
would voluntarily that does not make any sense that they that the entire population would voluntarily subject themselves to this it's literally that meme of the dog you know the dog just sitting at the table saying everything is fine while the fire consumes everything around him these people have traveled the stars terraformed and i imagine colonized planets they've thrived for 100,000 years and now they're just going gently into that good night while i'm the only one left raging over it it doesn't make any sense but whatever whatever bye bye krypton hello earth so yeah i find this whole opening sequence to be both good not even good okay and just also kind of just absolutely stupid i understand what they were trying to go for but its execution wasn't all that remarkable and truth be told it's probably the most forgettable aspect of this film yes i praise it for offering a unique extended take on the last days of krypton i admire the attempt but honestly the inconsistency in regards to the information being dished out kind of makes it all feel really really dumb i can appreciate wanting to flesh out the mythos but all it really did was leave me scratching my head as to why certain decisions were made why are people staying on Krypton when, they're, when they seem to believe what Jor-El had said about the consequences of mining the planet? Why did they abandon all their outposts and come back to a world that was in the midst of an energy crisis? Were they aware of the effect a young son would have on their physiology? If so, why would they even want to stay on Krypton? How exactly does the Codex work? And what exactly was the purpose of putting it inside Kal-El other than to further the plot? In what way will it benefit him? What information can he get from it that's not already in the little flash drive that Jor-El sent off with him? I mean, why is why is Laura not being shot into the Phantom Zone when she was complicit in Jor-El's plan? Why aren't they trying to get information out of her to find the Codex? Why wouldn't Laura leave the planet and go to Earth and just keep a watch? Eye over Clark without interfering with him. Why are these Phantom Zone pods shaped like penises? Okay, alright, whatever. I'm just. Hmm. Yep, so, whatever. So many questions, uh, but, you know, I'm, we're, just, we're never, we're never going to get the answers to them. Uh, it seems. I don't know, but it's fine. I can, you know, I can appreciate the effort that went into cultivating this world that manages to simultaneously be foreign and yet. <laughs> honestly dreadfully familiar i guess what comes to the forefront of my mind in regard to the whole first act this whole little first sequence uh is the fact that sometimes uh less is more and uh yeah that's it for the first episode i hope you um enjoyed this i really do hope that you guys enjoyed it um going forward the episodes probably won't be as long as this one this one's kind of a. I just had a lot to say about this particular part um probably looking for like probably looking at maybe 20 to 30 minute episodes going forward um but yeah this i just had a lot to say about this first part and i didn't it didn't seem right to split it up so i just recorded it all and uh yeah now my throat hurts um but i hope you enjoyed it um if you did uh subscribe follow uh all of my Handles are DoomXPHD. Uh, that's for Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. I can't think of any other ones. And then I also have a YouTube channel as well, uh, which you may be watching slash listening to this on YouTube instead of um, on the podcast or on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever else podcasts can be found. Um, but yeah, uh, this was episode one and... 
Hope you enjoyed it. Um, until next time. Later. Mm-hmm.